You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This segment is made possible by an educational grant from Shire Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to Updates from the Mayo Clinic, focusing on primary care pediatrics and child mental health. Here's your host, Dr. Peter S. Jensen, a childhood and adolescent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hello, this is Dr. Peter Jensen. Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Update Series on Primary Care Child Mental Health. I'm very pleased that with me today is a dear friend and colleague, Professor of Psychiatry, Dr. Gabriel Carlson. Uh, Gay Carlson, uh, I've known for many, many years. Gay, welcome. Thank you. Gay, you're a professor of psychiatry at Stony Brook? Psychiatry and pediatrics at Stony Brook, New York, yes. Thank you. Well, that's especially important because one of the things that we're trying to do through this series is help primary care providers really understand the, the scope and the reach of child mental health problems that they really need to be thinking about and get up to speed on in primary care. So, Gay, on this topic today, we're going to focus on bipolar disorder, uh, and you are a preeminent uh, internationally. I've known for many years uh, and have always turned to you for my best advice and guidance on pediatric bipolar disorder. So I guess the first question I would have, and one I hear from uh, many primary care colleagues is, is this getting more common? Um, we're hearing all about it in the news magazines and other places. I think the term has become more common. I don't know whether the condition has become more common. I think the best way of understanding this whole issue is to understand that there are, kind of like politics, there are liberal and conservative views about it. So if we look at the most conservative definition of bipolar disorder or manic depressive illness, as it used to be called, I'm going to guess that the rates have not changed. I think the definition has broadened in recent years um, to incorporate more emotionally labile kids that are being described as having mixed episodes that are, are often uh, quite long in length, and that's the more liberal viewpoint. And that condition, I think, has, if, if it hasn't become more common, more kids are being labeled with it and therefore getting called bipolar. It reminds me, actually, Peter, of, of um, when I was in training, people would use the term schizophrenia loosely. Oh, you're so schizophrenic, meaning that, you know, you had one opinion one day and another opinion another day. Now you get sort of hurled the same thing. Oh, I'm so bipolar, meaning that my mood is very variable. You know, I'm happy one minute and sad the next minute. Um, that's not, in my opinion, what the disorder, bipolar disorder, is. But people throw that term around um, a lot more than they used to. That seems like a very important uh, distinction. The, the word is being bandied about a lot, the term. But if we go to, say, a more classic definition of what the term was originally meant to describe, can you tell us really what bipolar disorder classically is? It, it's a term that uh, in the 1980 DSM-3 got changed from manic depressive illness to bipolar disorder. And it's, it's meant to encompass people who have had uh, at least a lifetime episode of mania or hypomania. Um, but that's the, the, the one of the poles, the other pole being depression. And so you have um, sort of various types of bipolar disorder. You have bipolar 1, which is mania with or without depression. You have bipolar 2, which is depression with hypomania or 
mild and not as impairing mania. And then there's this sort of broader term called bipolar not otherwise specified, which like all the not otherwise specified is kind of a wastebasket for people who don't have quite enough symptoms or whose duration isn't quite long enough. But the point of the condition is that you are supposed to have at least an episode of mania in which you are different from your usual self, that this is a protracted period of time, not just a few hours, in which you have a sustained period of hyperactivity, which is goal-directed, uh, often irritable mood. Um, you are grandiose and, and have a hugely inflated self-esteem. Your mood is, is elated and expansive. Um, you're energetic and everything is racy and hyper and, and you're thinking fast and talking fast and moving fast and you're just so full of energy you don't feel like you need to sleep who needs to sleep anyway you're just kind of up all night and you're energetic um, that's the manic episode that um, is the cardinal feature of of bipolar disorder and at least in dsm-4 it's a period that's supposed to last at least a week they're going to modify it, I think, in DSM-5 to make it clear that it's an episode that's clearly different from the way you have been before. And episodes have an onset and offset. So you're not supposed to have been like this beginning at the age of three and expanding, you know, until you were 22. So I think it's that definition of episode that has caused a little bit of um, controversy. That seems like that'll be very clarifying and helpful because it does seem to me that a lot of the confusion sometimes around whether a child might have bipolar has to do with a kid who's chronically trouble, in trouble, troubling, irritable, you know, stormy, tantrums, and that's kind of how he is. And so this would actually not, these changes would make it clear that that child shouldn't meet criteria for the classic mania and bipolar disorder. Probably not. And and I think one of the things that, it's one of the unintended consequences of two things. First of all, the uh, criteria in DSM have always said a week's worth of, at least a week's worth of, but they didn't say put a tail end of it. So, you know, if you've been that way since the age of two, it's clearly you've had at least a week's worth, but you haven't had an episode because it never really remitted for a significant length of time. I think part of the reason that we've ended up with using bipolar disorder is we have a lot of significantly impaired kids who really are very moody and irritable and um, explosive. And we don't, we haven't had a good way of classifying these children because they're more than just oppositional. They're not, conduct disorder doesn't really nail what it is that describes them. They can be depressed, but they're often very agitated. They are children who've got a lot of mixed emotions and it's very impairing to them. And because we haven't had a good place to put them in, bipolar disorder kind of fit the bill in a way because it describes having lots of different, if you look at the mania criteria, there's lots of different moods that go in there. And then if you say the person has had a mixed episode, that means, okay, good, well, then they can have depressive symptoms in there. And so that seemed to have afforded a diagnostic home for some of these kids. But as it's turned out, those kids don't respond to the same kinds of treatments that at least adults with classical manic depressive illness have responded to. And by the way, the, the concept has, has broadened in adults as well. So I think that 
what happened was the committee, the, the child committee, became concerned about the fact that the diagnosis of bipolar disorder or mania had been abused, and so they sort of developed another condition that was supposed to be better able to capture moody, irritable kids, and that's the disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. It does seem like that'll be helpful to begin not calling one thing a label that doesn't quite fit and then confusing all the treatment issues and the course and outcome issues that may not be the same with the more traditional bipolar disorder. It's certainly true for that. I think the difficulty, Peter, is that, and nobody should know this better than you because you've been working in the area of affective and reactive aggression for a long time, the fact remains that children become irritable with a lot of different kinds of problems. Aggression can be in the context of a number of different disorders, and many of us feel that you really often need to address the regular disorder to see if that emotional ability or reactive aggression attenuates, and if it does, then you don't need something else. And so you've got kids with ADHD who are emotionally labile and volatile and all those kinds of things, and if their ADHD is treated, often those symptoms get remarkably better. The same thing is true with anxiety. same thing is true with depression. So my concern about the disruptive mood dysregulation disorder is, is by looking like you've invented something new, people aren't going to be looking for the old things that can also be associated with that moodiness. These kids that have some of the old disorders, if you will, like ADHD or depression or anxiety, uh, and they look so uh, difficult to treat, uh, maybe let's take the messy kid with ADHD, if you will, a lot of stuff going on in addition to the classic ADHD. One of the things we hear is that, oh, my goodness, if you put that child on a stimulant or you're going to make him at risk for bipolar disorder, you'll cause it. What are your thoughts about that? What do we know there? Well, here's where the, the liberal versus conservative viewpoint comes in. And, and I guess, you know, if we're going to have ex, if we're going to have disclosures, my disclosure is I'm kind of a conservative in terms of, of, of any of this business. My thinking is that ADHD is a much more common condition. You remember in medical school we heard the if you hear hoofbeats, don't think of zebras. Um, that when I was trained with ADHD, the symptoms were hyperactivity, impulsivity, distractibility, and emotional lability. So to me, that emotionality part is often part of the ADHD. It was ignored in DSM-3 and 4. Um, it, it's only in the secondary symptoms. And that was, a, that was another unintended consequence because by ignoring that, people lost the fact that that's really uh, intrinsic to many kids, not all, but many kids with ADHD. So going with the if you hear hoofbeats, don't think of zebras, my feeling is that if you have a history that looks like the person has ADHD, even if they're moody, I will treat the ADHD first. And I will have a discussion if with a parent, if, for instance, there's a family history of bipolar disorder or whatever, and I will say, here are your choices. We can treat the ADHD, and we can see whether it responds to the stimulant uh, or, or ADHD medications. If it doesn't or if the child really does look like he's getting worse or getting manic, we can stop it. There is no evidence that treating somebody's ADHD with a stimulant makes you have something that you wouldn't otherwise have had. It's kind of like the, it, it's kind of like the tick business that we used to have.
half years ago, where we became aware of the fact that ticks were really pretty common and, and, and stimulants don't give you Tourette's. They may exacerbate your tick disorder, but they don't give you something you weren't going to have. So we're talking with Dr. Gay Carlson, professor of psychiatry and pediatrics, an expert in bipolar disorder. She's at Stony Brook University, and we're talking about bipolar disorder and some of the confusion in the field about is this child bipolar or is it something else? Okay, let me ask you, are there tools that the primary care provider, since we're focusing on them, might use to help them sort out the bipolar child from this messy child that you uh, described that may fit this new diagnostic category? I wish there was an easy answer, Peter. This is not one that I think a I expect a primary care doc to be able to sort out. What he has or what she has that often I don't have is a longitudinal picture of the kid. And so if if the doc has known that kid since he was knee-high to a grasshopper, that person's often in the position to be able to say, you know, this kid is just a bigger version of what he was at 2, 3, and 4. And to me, that is a, a very important piece of information. So that goes back to the, the episode? In other words, uh, you've got to have a change, right? You've got to have a change. If, if it turns out that, the, you know, butter wouldn't melt in the child's mouth, and suddenly at the age of 14, the mother brings the kid in and says, I don't know what's happened to Mary or George, you know, he, he's become a completely different person. That, that change there, to me, is probably the most important you know, thing that I can hear. It, it says to me something new is going on. Maybe it's a mood disorder. Maybe it's something else. But at least it's not, you know, same, you know, what different day. So I think that the um, I think that the longitudinal information that the doctor has is often a much better set of circumstances. This is not a diagnosis that I could make easily. That that you know, it takes me several meetings. It takes me careful history. It takes me a long time doing it. There's just not an easy way of doing it, Peter, and I know there's not enough child psychiatrists going around, but I, I, there's, there's just not a simple and easy fix. People will say you can use a questionnaire like the mania rating scale or the Manny Pavalori has a child mania rating scale, and, and there's another scale that Eric Youngstrom uses. That's okay for somebody who is manic right now, but if somebody had a mania a year ago, there's no rating scale that's going to pick up something that happened in somebody's past. So be careful about rating scales. So, uh, you know, for our listeners, it does seem like many of them will have seen uh, depression. But this issue of mania is very interesting. What does a manic episode look like, a full-blown manic episode in a child that you'd say, whoa, that is mania? Well, you certainly see it much more in peripubertal and older kids, at which point what you see is somebody who is um, a train going down the hill at 90 miles an hour. I mean, they are very energetic, and they've got all sorts of ideas, and they, they're talking fast and moving fast, and, and, and they may be feeling perfectly fine, thank you very much, and then you tell them to you know, sit down and do their work or that you're not going to do what you want them to do, and you get this big explosion that's not typical of the child. You get that frequently in irritable kids, but they're chronically that way. It's the change here that really makes a difference. And you know, one of the points I wanted to make in terms of if there's something a primary care doc can do, I've given this advice before, and forgive me, it may not be what you wanted me to say, but for me, if I were a primary care doc, wherever it is you live, I would call your local 
university and find out who the experts are. And if you get a kid like that, I would say to the family, you know, if you have to go to Boise, if you have to go to Salt Lake City, if you have to go to Kansas City, if you have to go to Stony Brook, if you have to go to Pittsburgh, if you have to go to some place or another, it isn't to, to meet with an expert, do that. That's really the best thing you can do. I can then work with the person you know, maybe we can figure out how to treat your child. I can, you know, call that person back. We can come up with a treatment plan. But you really need to get an expert to do the diagnosis. Gay, before we leave, any final things you'd like the primary care provider to know? I like that last point, but what would you add to it in terms of maybe uh, uh, things that concern you about kind of this spate of diagnosis and, and uh, rush to treatment sometimes with uh, some of these powerful agents that we're not yet quite sure really work for these kids who aren't bipolar. Okay, here's, here's my take-home message, Peter. I, I, I'm not concerned as concerned with using the atypical antipsychotics with kids that are either irritable and explosive and haven't responded just to stimulants versus they have a manic episode. That's not my problem. That My problem actually is they don't work as well as I wish they did, but we don't have anything better. The, the, the important part is how long you keep the person on the medication. What comes with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder is the fact that you have a lifetime condition, okay? And that carries a very different burden than saying your child is moody and explosive now. I'm not sure exactly what's going on. We have to keep him in school. We're trying to keep him out of the hospital. We're going to do some things to see if we can modify the condition and calm things down, and we will revisit it periodically because we know from research that you've been involved in that after a certain number of months, sometimes these things get better. The, the person's gotten into another kind of treatment. The depression has resolved itself. You've gotten a different classroom. Things have gotten better. You don't have to be on the medication forever. So it isn't so much the fact that you're avoiding one type of medication versus another. It's the fact that the bipolar disorder carries the burden of, I know what's going to happen to this person for the rest of his life. The other condition, whether it's a DMDD or something else with the irritable mood, doesn't have that um, sort of certitude with it. That's wonderful, I think, cautionary advice that really helps us think about our long-term treatment planning for these children. We've been talking with Dr. Gay Carlson at Stony Brook University on the topic of pediatric bipolar disorder. This is your host, Dr. Peter Jensen at Mayo Clinic. This is the Mayo Clinic Update series on primary care child mental health. Thank you for listening and tune in again. Thank you for listening to updates from the Mayo Clinic. And thank you to Shire Pharmaceuticals, whose educational grant makes this program possible. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show and many others, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash Mayo Clinic.